Hello, good morning, or good afternoon, whatever part of the country you're in. This is All Strings Considered, Dr. Alexander Dunn from Victoria, BC, Canada. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So, first of all, let me apologize for the long delays between recent episodes of All Strings Considered. My teaching load has been gradually increasing, and the 10-plus hours it takes to edit an episode of All Strings Considered just hasn't been easy to find. Plus, it often takes away from my own practice time, which I'm really starting to miss. So, the podcast tends to be the thing that ends up getting cut from my schedule first, since I do, in fact, have to make a living. So, life aside, I do have a new episode for you that features my friend Alexander Dunn. I interviewed Alex about his latest project, which regards some little-known pieces by one of the great contributors to the classical guitar standard rep, Joaquin Turina. Specifically, he found a series of laud quartets that Turina either wrote or arranged for a specific quartet called the Aguilar Quartet. What is a laud? Well, it's played with a pick and it has frets, just like the guitar, and it looks a little bit like maybe a lute and a mandolin got together one night, had a few drinks, put on some Barry White. We've definitely got our thing together, don't we? One thing led to another and out popped Baby Laoud. It turns out these quartets written for Laoud work great on the modern guitar. So Alex called up Randy Pyle, Robert Ward, and myself to join him in demonstrating some of this music which we all premiered during his 2014 Guitar Foundation of America lecture this last summer. A few days later, we went off to Whittier College's shiny new recording studio and did a quick three-hour recording session. The awesome Danilo Lozano agreed to be our audio engineer, and I just finished editing them. So I get to bring you a small set of these lovely new guitar quartets from Turina. But let's start first with a little bit about Alex before he brings us some of the highlights from Tarina's life, some truly vintage recordings, a bit about the Aguilar Quartet themselves. Off we go. I started playing quite late. Yeah. I was an artist, visual artist, and then oh. turned to music very late in high school, really. In 14 or something, 15? Well, I studied seriously for a year. That was my last year of high school. And then I went to study music at uh, the San Francisco Conservatory. I started, I went to college at age 17, so I started studying at 16. And I was playing piano at the time. I was really into composition. Ah. And so I went, I was studying piano and guitar equally. Went to San Francisco and was unsure about which instrument to focus on. And I was studying composition at that time with John Adams, first year. And then decided on guitar as my primary instrument. Hmm. So I did that and got drawn to early music and contemporary music. It wasn't until much later that I started playing 19th century music on period instruments and such. That's not what you primarily do these days, though, right? These days, standard repertoire, early music, and contemporary music. Hmm. What else is there? You started so late, but you started on two instruments at once? Mm-hmm. How's that happen? I was just drawn to the piano repertoire. I still am. Hmm. And I think maybe that's what, partly what interested me so much of the Torino project. Hmm. I then went into the PhD program at University of California, San Diego. And it was there that I met Pepe Romero. I had known him before and went down to study. Uh-huh. And so I spent a number of years with him. I wrote a PhD dissertation on Robert Devizé's Theorbo pieces, but at the same time was playing 
contemporary music and stanza repertoire, playing the Romero Quartet as well for a season. It must have been so, fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun touring with them and uh, got very close to Pepe and the, and the family. Those are great years. And then immediately after I finished my PhD, I went to Victoria, BC, as I had an offer from the university there and have been teaching there ever since. We've got one of the strongest programs in Canada, very proud to say, with a very high level of playing, lots of good activity. Many people come through to play, so it's been a very rich and rewarding experience in Canada. Hmm. Do you consider Pepe your primary teacher? Pepe and Oscar Gilly. I studied with him for nine summers in Aspen. Is Celso Machado up there too? He's in Gibson's BC, up on the mainland. Oh. Great guy, wonderful musician. He comes. To, you have, you've had him out several times, haven't you? Yes, we've done projects, I've conducted works of his, and... He tends to hand out percussion instruments to the players and everybody gets into the groove. It's really fantastic. The players and the also the audience or just the players? The audience just claps or, you know, just shouts approvingly. <laughs> it's also wonderful. Do you have any other music you want us to hear aside from these quartets? Well, you might be interested in hearing the Sonata for Cello by Leggetti, which is um, a wonderful piece that needs to be played more. Mm. I sent it to the composer before he died. He was very... Um, very praiseworthy about it, um, but unfortunately Shaw would not let it into the catalog, so we don't have a guitar sonata by Leggetti. So it's a full sonata? It's a two-movement sonata. What was the recording of that one like? Is it, is it really tough music? You oh, arranged yeah, it's it? It's really hard, yeah. Leggetti, Leggetti. I've heard people pronounce it in all sorts of ways. So I'm going to stick with Alex's pronunciation and say Leggetti. So Leggetti was a Hungarian composer who was born in the 20s, and lived a good long life, having passed away just recently in 2006. He is counted among the avant-garde composers like John Cage and Zanakis and Boulez. But where Cage uses randomness to find new sounds and Boulez uses serialism, which highly constrains his composition, two starkly different methods of composition which both actively resist convention. Yet to my ear, both aleatoric and serial techniques create highly similar sounding music. When I listen to Ligeti, on the other hand, my sense is always that his ear and his intuition still have the final say in all of his music. So while he's able to create highly original music, which also avoids conventions like tonality, it is somehow more emotionally clear, often more rhythmically energetic too, and just a more enjoyable listening experience than most of his contemporaries. For example, his first etude for piano, though it is clearly not tonal, the overlapping rhythms and melodies create a series of textures that are cohesive and fun to listen to. Here's an excerpt of Etude 1, played by, excuse my French, Pierre Laurent Aymard, maybe? <laughs> A-I-M-A-R-D is the last name. also creates beautifully haunting melodies, and often the sense of very wide open spaces, which are occasionally kind of eerie. Stanley Kubrick frequently used Ligeti's music, sometimes without his permission, in his films, like 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Shining. Here's an excerpt of one of his famous choral works titled Luke's Aterna, 
sung by Capella Amsterdam. This one definitely creates that sense of space. If you're interested in learning a little more about Ligeti, uh, I just read a nice article in The Guardian by Tom Service that came up in the top few results of a Google search on Ligeti. And by the way, that's L-I-G-E-T-I. So while Ligeti never wrote a piece for the guitar, Alex did an almost verbatim arrangement of Ligeti's Sonata for Cello, which is in two movements. The first is titled Dialogo and the second Capriccio, which he premiered at another GFA. He unfortunately couldn't get the publishing rights for this arrangement, but I can at least share his recording of the work with you here.
Pretty cool stuff, right? Well, now that you've heard a little of Alex's playing, let's move on to Tarina's music for the Aguilar Laud Quartet. So why did you choose this particular project? Well, I've always been in love with Tarina, as most guitarists are. We have a small body of pieces, five pieces at all. Guitars know very well. And uh, my knowledge of Tarina didn't really extend very far beyond that. So I thought, well, I'll start listening to some orchestral piano music, chamber music, and so forth. It was really drawn into that world. And um, after doing that, was shown some uh, very interesting music by Pepe Romero that he had in his collection, which were manuscripts, manuscript parts for a very mysterious group of instruments. So on looking a little deeper, I thought that this would be a fantastic project to undertake, and it's overtaken me since. So is Tarina pretty well respected in the classical community outside the guitar world? I'd say so. He's a it's high-level Spanish music, maybe because there's some international influence in his style. It's got the you know Germanic structural uh, integrity. It's got French colors and nuance, and it's got the passion of the Spanish modes and rhythms. I can tell you a little bit about him. He hails from from Sevilla, and he was a child prodigy. He played the accordion, and later on moved to piano. He lived in Madrid for a while, and then he studied in Paris. In France, he absorbed the French influence. There was a meeting with Albanians who told him, you were a Spaniard and you need to write Spanish music, and that's really where your voice is. So it's often said that Torino was, had a French style and then became Spanish later at the behest of Albanians, but really what happened is Spanish music had always been in his awareness from a child. And he has written Spanish music, even his youthful pieces have some Spanish influence. So there was, he didn't come to a screeching halt and turn from French to Spanish. He always had the Spanish flavor in his music. So that's what he did after his studies at the Scola Contorum. He went back to Madrid and began writing really thoroughly Spanish music. There's a fascinating string quartet as opus number four. He nicknamed it De La Guitarra. And in it, you already hear uh, allusions to the sound of the Spanish guitar. For example, in the very opening, there are these harsh chords, and then the cello and the viola pluck the same pitches as the guitar open strings. And he's also an adept arranger of his own music. Like Ravel, he would write music at the piano because he was a virtuoso pianist. And then, you know, different kinds of uh, manifestations of the same piece would occur to him. Arrangements for cinema chamber orchestras, 
arrangements from piano to other mediums, especially orchestra. And it's when he, in the 1920s, when he encountered a charming group of musicians, the Cuarteto Aguilar, three brothers and a sister looking very much like film stars from the 1920s. And they were uh, players of um, interesting, uh, kind of pluck string, uh, metal strung with a plectrum instruments. Uh, they formed a quartet. Think You can think of family quartets like the Romeros. That's sort of like the Aguilars. Yeah. So they were um, all virtuoso players. And they met Tarina in the 1920s, or rather, he heard them at a concert. Uh -huh. And he was very impressed. He made these notes. He kept a diary, a very um, detailed diary of uh, every day, his activities. And he mentions meeting the Aguilar Quartet and hearing them in concert. And it was shortly after that that he began, began inviting them to his apartment because he had private musical evenings with his close circle of musician friends. And the Aguilars became very close to him and part of that musical circle. Huh. So uh, tell me about the laud. The lute's an, an interesting instrument. I, have, I suspect it's going to enjoy a renaissance. It's really a bandoria. It's a metal-strung instrument, much like a cittern that's played with a plectrum. Mm. And it's a tenor instrument like the guitar, tenor range. Mm. But the uh, the Aguilar Quartet um, invented two other instruments to go with it. So they invented a laudine, which is a tiny little a tiny little one, and then the laudete, which is pitched about a fourth below that, and then the regular laud, which is a tenor-type instrument, and then they invented the laudon, which is a big bass one. So that one had seven strings. And that went way below guitar range, right? It went way below. It actually went way below cello range. So it's it sort of reflects the range of a string quartet. Hmm. So it'd be easy for any composer to write to conceive of music for string quartet, and it could be immediately transferred to to a laud quartet. Hmm. It's interesting that when you hear the historical recordings, which we'll um, visit momentarily that they sustain pitches by doing a rapid tremolo effect with a plectrum. Like a mandolin would. Yeah. And they're exactly. fretted, right? They are. Because I have seen laud, or something called a laud, that didn't have frets. Oh, a Middle was, Eastern type instrument? Yes. I actually heard somebody play Capricho Arabe on one. Oh, interesting. It was really cool. Well, they played up the laud-ud connection because, uh, uh, you know, in their programs in Europe and the States, they would mention that uh, they were playing lutes. They call it, you know, Spanish lute. It's not really a lute. Mm -hmm. But they would play arrangements of Mozart or later music and, and sort of lay claim to the history of lute instruments, you know, from the 16th century onwards. Mm. So that's how they um, got their repertoire, and they fascinated a lot of Spanish composers along the way. So they convinced Torina to arrange a first piece for them, right? I pr most likely it's not really known whether Torino went to them or they came to Torino, but they started be they, you know they were drawn to this musical circle. Were coming to play concerts in and the apartments. I suspect that Paco Aguilar, who played the laudon, which is the big one, the big bass one, asked to do an arrangement from piano music. Mm. So the way it worked is that as you see in the Torino's daily diaries, they would come to him, and you can imagine him sitting at the piano, reaching into a pile of his piano music, sitting down and working with the four players at the parts how they distribute the parts, who would do what, and how it would sound overall. Mm. And you can sort of get an idea of this very process by listening to this piano work, one of the Danzas Fantasticas, which is the Opus 22, number three, maybe its most famous work called Orgia. And this is the original version for piano. Here it is orchestrated in 1919, the same year that he wrote for piano.
finally, here is the arrangement that he worked on with the Aguilars for Laud Quartet. This arrangement was done much later in 1925, six years later. And this is the famous Aguilar sound. As you heard in the recording, it's a little bit scratchy, so it gives it that 1920 charm. But you can hear the tremolo effect in all the instruments. Of course, it's done in the piano, but this is just a way to extend the pitches out and more kind of making that bridge from piano to string quartet mentality. So are there some big differences between, say, the orchestral version? Well, I imagine the orchestral version is going to have lots of big differences because he has so much a bigger palette of instruments. But in this case, is the are the largest differences between the piano and the... Laoud Quartet or the orchestra on the Laoud Quartet? It sort of depends on the, on the original. He took the piano pieces and kind of exploded them out to Laoud Quartet. Uh-huh. So he would expand the range from the piano originals, which in, in this case, and the Danza Fantastica, it's got a bit of a more narrow range. So he would ex- move them out and add extra notes and ex- basically explode the texture to suit the quartet. Mm, so close intervals end up being very widely spaced? Either that, or he would double parts, and then ah. some rhythms would be missing in the part, so it was more like an ensemble hocket effect. Okay, time for a quick music lesson. What's hocket? Well, it occurs in music from all over the world, not just Western art music. And in simplest terms, it's the sharing of a single melody, or maybe a single rhythmic idea, by more than one musician or instrument. So you might take a scale like this one. but give every other note of that scale to a different player. Like this, maybe? Not only does it slightly alter the sound of the line, because two people are never going to play exactly the same way, but it also adds a spatial element to the line, which I've made happen here by putting one player in one speaker and one player in the other. You often hear this in pop music, with panning on the speakers, like this Talking Heads tune, Psycho Killer. If you focus on the guitars, you'll hear two distinct guitar parts. One's panned hard to the right, the other sounds like it's probably somewhere down the middle, both adding up to this great interlocking groove. This idea of interlocking grooves, Talking Heads probably took this from their knowledge of African drumming styles, where music that is incredibly rhythmically complex can be split into its many constituent parts, allowing each musician to focus on a single idea, and often a more manageable one, but where the sum of all those parts is something truly amazing. This is also one of the great features of Flamenco Palmas. These highly energetic lines would be way too much work for a single person, but sharing the work between two or three people makes it easy to keep it going for a long period of time and brings a precision that might not be possible from a single person. Similarly, in Peru, 
You get lots of music written and performed on panpipes. They have a whole family of pipes of different sizes called zamponia. The biggest and deepest sounding of these is called a toyo. These take a huge amount of air to play, even a single note, which means playing a fast melody line is practically impossible. So, Peruvian musicians get around this by splitting the melody between more than one player, like this. Pretty cool, right? All right, so back to Torina. But all done very effectively. It works, it works beautifully. By the way, there's a manuscript commentary about Orgia, which is really wonderful. And there's a, a poem that he inscribed in Spanish, and a, it's quite short. And the English translation is, The perfume of the flowers merged with the odor of manzanilla, and from the bottom of raised glasses, full of wine incomparable as incense, flowed forth joy. What's manzanilla? It's an apple sherry that they drink in Andalusia. It's shared among friends. And um, part of Torina's culture was to have little parties with his friends and they would drink manzanilla. In fact, Eliza, who was the uh, female member of the Aguilar Quartet, was nicknamed La Comadre, the godmother, who was kind of like the godmother of the other parties. Uh-huh. They would always haul out their casks of manzanilla to uh, celebrate. <laughs> That's fun. Well, in the early 1920s, Torino was hanging out with the Aguilar Quartet, and in 1923, he made an entry into his diary, June 14th. He said, in, he wrote this one in French, saying that he had started uh, work for guitar. This was the first work for guitar that he wrote for Sokovia, which was the Seviana Fantasia. It's interesting that all the guitar works, roughly the time that they were composed, roughly mirrored the uh, Aguilar's activity, too. Hmm. About a 12-year intense period of, of friendship that they worked together in Madrid. That's really interesting. So he's working so much with these plucked strings, made it kind of an easy transition to maybe write for a plucked guitar. It's interesting to think in those terms. I'm not really sure. I'm sure that, you know, because he had the guitar in his awareness all that time, he was an avid photographer. And if you look at his photographs, you actually see portraits with guitar. Yeah. Even uh, his um, his daughter, Abdulia, is uh, seated with a little guitar toy. <laughs> so, you know, it was, in, it was in his mind, but I guess he was probably just waiting for the right uh, moment. For a player to appear that would spur him forward. Was he also exposed to flamenco as a young? Absolutely. He heard uh-huh. five very fine flamenco players in Madrid. His favorite player, I'm told, was not Andres Segovia, but rather was Angel Barrios. And Barrios was a composer and um, a musicologist, a very large personality, and most likely Turin was exposed to pure forms of flamenco. That's why that was imported into his guitar music as opposed to the Laud Quartet, which are really more of a piano genesis. Well, after becoming friends with the quartet, um, their first project was a, a very interesting piece called Fiesta Mora, which he wrote in 1915, but didn't get arranged until 1924. Hmm. And that draws, of course, on Moorish influences. Uh-huh. And in it, you hear, uh, Tarina actually describes the uh, the work as being a kind of dance scene, where the dancers become more and more involved in the movement and then fall to the floor in exhaustion. You can see a photograph of the uh, quartet that's dressed up in a, their sort of Muslim attire and they're posing at the Alhambra. It's a charming ins- uh, photograph that they inscribed and gave to Torina. So their first project was this Fiesta Mora in Tanger or Moorish holiday in, in Tanger. Now here is the Fiesta Mora as arranged for Laud Quartet in 
the Fiesta Mora kind of established their relationship. Along this time, more guitar works were being written in 1925 with Stefan Nanguillo that all guitarists know. And the very same year, he wrote the work for the Laio Quartet. They must have been tremendously proud of this one. That was the Oración del Torero. The Oración is a magnificent meditation on an intense Lorca-like poem in Spanish. And uh, I'd love to read you the poem. It's actually scrawled on the parts in ink. And then a new version was, uh, it was crossed out in new versions as Nuevo, Nuevo Texto was written in. And I'd love to read the English translation for you. Yeah. So on these parts that Paco Aguilar, the fourth player of the quartet, wrote, the poem goes as such. Ambiance of thorns in the Plaza de Toros, a day of hurriedness, hour of sun and death, smell of blood and sand. The sword is fronted before the altar, and the echo of a cheerful paso dobles leaps between prayer and joy. The hour of the fiesta is approaching, and the chapel takes solitary silence. So in that scenario of a, of a bullfighter praying before the going out into the arena, that's the, the idea, the conception behind the Oración del Torero. Uh-huh. And that's one of the ones that a lot of different quartets already have incorporated into the guitar repertoire, the quartet repertoire. I've heard a couple of versions of Oración. The Romeros have recorded it. Mm. Um, so Oración was originally written for the Aguilar Quartet mm. and in 1925. And he immediately made an arrangement for his string quartet, which has entered the repertory as a standard quartet hmm. item. And then after that, he made a version for incorporating contrabass for string orchestra. Mm. And it might interest you to hear on the parts of that he prepared for the quartet, he inscribed these charming little nicknames for each of the players. To Laudin One, who is uh, Ezekiel, he calls um, Ezekielote la estrella de Cuarteto Aguilar, which is the star of the quartet. Uh-huh. And to the second player, the Laudin Two, who's um, Jose, it says, a Joselita el administrado de Cuarteto Aguilar which is a Basque word meaning like the hefe, the boss, and the administrator, the guy in charge. Uh-huh. To the loud part, which is Eliza, she, he writes, A la comadre Eliza, en honor de nuestra ahijada la orgía. So she's the god's daughter of the party, uh-huh. of the manzanilla. And to the last player, Paco, he writes, A paquillo el más flamenco del cuarteto aguilar. <laughs> The string quartet version of the Oración, there are a couple of interesting parallels. For starters, the string quartet starts with a tremolo. I suspect that that was largely borrowed from the Aguilar sound of the tremolo. In the same year, he made uh, another arrangement for the quartet, a set of pieces written for children called Niñerías. And it's a, a little book of children's pieces, much like Schumann or Villalobos' piano books. And in the book, there's a little soldier's march called Desfile de Soldados de Plomo. So the, a march of the tin soldiers. I'm told by people that have visited Tarina's apartment that they see a little arrangement of tin soldiers. Uh, so that's a charming little uh, idea. The Aguilar's made a version of this piano piece for quartet. More were planned, the prelude and fugue and a dance of the dolls, but they were not completed. In fact, there are, the dance of the dolls only has two parts extant. So that would be an interesting arrangement project, which I hot on the heels of arranging that one. And just a year later, in 1926, he made an arrangement of another piano piece, his Opus 41, called Dos Danzas. And Dos Danzas is a short set consisting of 
Cadena de Seguidillas, which means it's kind of a procession of Seguidillas. And the second movement is called El Arbol de Guernica, which means the Tree of Guernica, which is a symbol of Basque independence. But the Dos Danzas was arranged from piano, so it was one of those situations where they'd come to the apartment again, Trina would play the piano, mm -hmm. and then they would talk about how to do the arrangement. Here's a little sampling of the first movement, the Cadena de Seguidillas, on the piano. So we have written version, just not a recorded version of That's their right. arrangements. And, and incidentally, they only exist in part. There's no score. For the guitar quartet version we're about to hear, uh -huh. I took the Aguilar version verbatim. Did ah. not add anything. The only changes are, of course, the huge range of the of the Laud quartet has to be compressed for guitar quartet. Uh huh. And then some tremolos removed and things like that? I took that? out all tremolos because the idea was to go back to the sustain of the piano sound. Uh-huh. So you are taking a little bit of both in a way, right? That's right. Well, incidentally, in the parts, the Trina would make the parts for them. And then there's a second layer of information where the players would scroll in the tremolo markings and do fingerings uh, and edit the parts too. Uh, so they had a lot to do with the arrangements as well, at least uh, in terms of the, the general sonority. And and really, the tremolo is just a sustained thing anyway, so the modern guitar doesn't need that extra sustain. That's right. And the four guitars approach piano, piano residents anyway. So tell me about these two pieces that we're going to hear. And so tell me about the, the language in this. Is this very much French? Is this Spanish? Like all Torina, the guitar pieces, the piano pieces, orchestral pieces, he uses mo various modes over um, typically descending tetrachord, which is a series of four chords that descend by step. The A minor G F E thing? Yes. Uh -huh. And he also has some French colorations in there too. Mm. You hear minor chords with the, with the major six, different intervals in there to give us some spice. Lots of parallel um, movement because that's natural to the piano to play the parallel triads. He writes that uh -huh. in his guitar music too. I was having a conversation with Pepe Romero about the guitar pieces, and um, in my mind, the, the Laud Quartet pieces are more like the pian a piano original that has been reconsidered for a string quartet, whereas the guitar pieces, I think, more reflect his orchestral textures. Uh, okay. Raschiato, mm. tutti strings doing a tremolo, uh -huh. attacks and winds, short chords. Okay, let's hear those two pieces. They are the Dos Danzas, Opus 41, written for piano and then arranged by Torina for the Aguilar, and now adapted to the guitar quartet. In this case, a quartet comprised of Alex Dunn, Randy Pyle, Robert Ward, and myself. The first is titled Cadena de Seguidillas, and the second is El Arbol de Huernica.
There's a lot of charming correspondence from the quartet. There are letters and postcards when they were vacationing outside of Spain. Um, probably because they lived in Madrid, they were able to drop by a lot. And later on, Torita had some ailments and illnesses. And uh, because they really never had a formal music training, conservatory training, they were kind of self-taught musicians. But two of them, the brothers, had medical backgrounds. So they were able to make trips with Torita to the pharmacy to get whatever he needed. Interesting. So they, it was almost like they were, they started their quartet as a hobby. And ended up being a professional quartet. Very much so. They f they went all over the world. And uh, it's interesting, Stravinsky made arrangements for them. Walking in with Defaya. So they were very well regarded. So the last piece we're going to talk about is the Recuerdos del Antico España, which had a French title in the piano version. And it's a set of pieces, four piano pieces. He opted not to arrange number three, which is called Don Juan. But he did arrange numbers one, two, and four. And the first movement is fascinating. It's called the Eternal Carmen which is a, um, a portrait, really, of the naughty uh, temptress, Spanish temptress, uh, who um, lures men to... Ruin. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this piece, um, is it's wonderful. Pianists know it because it's one of his more well-known uh, piano works. And here is the first movement, the Eternal Carmen from Recuerdos. <laughs> And then, as far as recordings go for the laud, does this one exist? No. This one's does, again, the score exists, not. but not the sound recording. I could only find three historical recordings of the um, Aguilar people. And it was those two most famous. It was the fiesta, it was the... Um, and the oracion. oracion. And the orgia. How does this differ from the dos danzas? The recuerdos arrangement was done in uh, 1930, mm. and it was written in 1929. So, he was on board the George Washington which is a famous passage ship going from Europe to New York. And I don't know if they had a piano on board or not. But by that time, after knowing the Aguilar so closely, I, I'm sure that he was able to sit down and do an arrangement and I felt very confident about it. He put a lot of work into it. It's his most worked out piece for the Aguilars. It's the most detailed and take, makes use of the instrument in the most idiomatic way. And I think you, you mentioned something about him being very free about changing notes, changing voicings. That's right. It wasn't as strict a transfer of the um, notes as the Dos Danzas. Recuerdos takes a lot of liberties. He actually adds an extended ending at the end of the second movement, mm. makes some other small structural changes and uh, more changes rhythmically and note-wise as well. Mm. Did you find any particular challenges to doing this one from, from the laud? Yes, there's such a high range for the first laud part. That had to be compressed down. But I don't think it it loses any of its vivaciousness. Are you going to publish these? Yes, I hope to. But if people are loving these and they want to play them with their quartet, do I just send them to you? No. <laughs> Wait till I publish. Because <laughs> yeah, the Romeros want to do them first. So, okay, so that first movement's a lot of fun to play. I, I should know. And a lot of crazy tempo changes. That's right. Is there any kind of formal thing we should know about it? Is it as capricious as Carmen might be? Well, it, it moves quickly between one music and another. Uh -huh. So there's a rapid 3-8 kind of whirling dance feel, and then it goes into a more measured dotted figure. So there's a kind of split personality going on. It moves very quickly back and forth. Uh -huh. And then it seems like every composer of the early 20th century wrote a Habanera at some point or another, right? Torino was among them. Yeah. He wrote a, a wonderful Habanera for this set. 
and uh, he added a lot of interesting colors and effects, like the slides you hear at the beginning of the movement. Of course, they're not at the piano. Uh -huh. It's more of a string detail. Uh -huh. The tambour effect is also uh, peculiar to the arrangement. Torino wrote that in the parts. He wrote to do tambour on a load. Or at least Paco Aguilar uh -huh. wrote it in the parts. So it may have been a kind of texture that they decided on later in rehearsal. Is the technique the same as well? Just hitting lightly the string. Huh. And then the last movement is a passacaglia. So it starts at uh -uh, kind of... we got to talk about one other thing, the thing that's stuck in my head every day after playing oh. this piece. Well, when you listen to the Habanera, you might hear the ghost of a memory of a popular song from the 1920s, is it? Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Send me a kiss by wire. And that's Hello My Dolly. Yeah. Hello My Dolly. That's actually actually something you might have heard in Cuba at the time. Right? There's, there's certain, I mean, Cuba was like the Las Vegas of the United States in that time. That's right. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that theme, maybe that's originally a Cuban theme. Maybe it's original Turin and a Cuban yeah. heard it. <laughs> yeah, and then it ended up. <laughs> so he throw. does he just throw a Malambo in? Yes, he just throws his 6-8 dance in the middle. Which is uh, Argentine. That's right. It goes from a somber habanero rhythm into this quick dance. Uh-huh. And then back to the habanero. Okay, and then the last? Last movement, we have a little pasacalia, which starts very mock serious. And it, it turns into a kind of more of a, really a popular song feel. And it's a lot of fun to play. It's very colorful and light. And uh, good distribution of parts among all the players. It's uh -huh. a super piece. Yeah, it's really fun. I think really yeah. all these quartet pieces are would be should enter the quartet repertoire. Yeah, they they sound great. They're fun to play. It reminds me a bit of the Pasacalia at the end of one of the Rodrigo three Spanish pieces. Okay, so I'm happy to have been able to introduce you to Alexander Dunn. I just want to get you a little bit of contact info for him. AlexanderDunn.ca and any other way to get a hold of you? Yes, you can go to the website and uh, or contact me by email. I'm always happy to uh, look at people's uh, emails and to uh, provide music or their information. Oh, and then also Scott has been playing a bunch of your Davizet That's arrangements, right. right? He played um, Vizet arrangements for Theobro that I gave to Scott as a range for guitar. And he's been playing them for a number of years. He does a lovely job with them. Yeah, I think he picked them back up because he played at the last GFA. That's right. Them, and they're really nice. And those you just give away, right? They're on my website. They're on the website. As is the dissertation. So before we hear Torina's Souvenirs of Ancient Spain, just let me say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. So here's Alex, Randy Pyle, Bob Ward, and myself bringing you Torina's three-movement arrangement of his Souvenirs of Ancient Spain. Originally written for the Aguilar Laud Quartet, arranged for guitar quartet by Alex. The first movement is titled The Eternal Carmen, the second Habanera, and the third is a Pasacalia titled Estudiantina. Until next time, enjoy the music.
Well, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Are we done? I think so. What do you think? It's hot. Yeah, it's hot.